foreheads. Dearly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous privilege, this honor of gathering together as family, Father, in a unity that you've provided from eternity past on a night like this. Otherwise, a noteworthy night, but to you it means everything in this moment in time because it's another opportunity for your children to be sanctified by the word. This is how it happens, Father. This we know by your grace. Father, we are so very grateful and thankful for your patience with us, your grace, your mercy, and your love, of course. Father, we're so very undeserving, and it's by the merits of your Son and being in him alone that we're even able to partake in an evening like this, to break bread together in this wonderful way. Father, we thank you and we pray for those that are still unable to be with us in the congregation due to illness or what have you. And most of all, we pray for those that are still lost, that before it's too late, we might be given an opportunity, even personally, if not corporately, to evangelize them. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make an evening like this a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, undistracted devotion to the Lord. I want to open up with a friendly reminder. Turn your Bibles to Romans 5, verse 6. Romans 5, verse 6. Just a friendly reminder. Again, Romans 5, verse 6. Let's open up this way. Romans 5, 6, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Frankly, this is what true love looks like, my friends. God demonstrated it. His own love, that unique, precious love, the love that can be counterfeited at best, but can never be duplicated That's verse 8. God demonstrated that love, and this is what true love looks like. So the question that begs to be answered in each of our lives is actually very simple. Is my life consistent with this kind of love? Is my life consistent with this kind of love? Am I willing to lay down my life for others? not because I am emotionally attached to them, but rather for our Father's sake in heaven, the way Christ did. Am I willing to lay down my life? Not because I'm emotionally attached to someone, but rather because or for our Father's sake in heaven. That is the model we've been given from 
his son, our Lord and Savior, after all? And is my heart right before God? And on this last question, we must remember what Holy Scripture has taught us up here on the board. This came out on Tuesday evening with Scott's uh, message. Your deeds are a reflection of where your heart is. Matthew 7, 15 to 23, 15, 18. Again, your deeds are a reflection of where your heart is. And so these are good questions that we ought to ask ourselves periodically. Is my heart right before God? And what of my deeds? Because my deeds are, as the Bible unabashedly, uh, unequivocally describes our deeds as being a reflection of our hearts. And as Scott brought out on Tuesday, we might say, up here on the board, we might say our deeds give us away. Our deeds give us away. Some of you might be murmuring already, <laughs> three minutes in. Some of you might be murmuring in your heads, well, I don't have deeds that I can point to right now, let's say, but who are you to suggest that I don't have love? So I don't have deeds I can point to, but who are you to suggest that I don't have love? Well. Let me turn the tables around on you for a moment and ask how many times you have said to God, show me that you loved me. How many times have you prayed that? Lord, show me your love. I'm doubting. My faith is waning. Whatever the problem was, I'm emotionally distraught. Whatever the problem was, how many times have you said in the quiet of your own soul, Show me that you love me to God. How many times have you demanded that God reveal his love to you? And how many times have you used the evidence, the evidence of his love for you as proof that his love for you even exists? Countless, right? countless times. All you have to do is look at the birds in the air, see something beautiful, look at his creation, look at your children, look at your parents, look at your, your friends, look at people who you love. This is all evidence, if you would. And we're not ashamed or afraid to say that evidence is proof that God loves us. The grace times in our lives, the times when we're able to easily identify his hand in our lives. We're not afraid of that kind of evidence. As a matter of fact, we kind of demand it <laughs> in our own way. We depend on it. I think that's fair to say. So think about that, that we do that to God. We demand things from God that we ourselves balk at when it comes to sharing the same love. Meanwhile, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In other words, Jesus said, I want a little evidence. He said, how about, how about some deeds? Because <laughs> when he was in his incarnation, when he was walking the earth, he would sift people and say, yeah, 
Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do that? Get away from me. I never knew you. He would sift people based on deeds even. And so here we have a mandate, or if you would, or a plainly stated uh, dogma. If you love me, you will keep my commands. Jesus said that, period. The practical side of this statement up here on the board is this. Love's expression. If love for Christ is your root system, your motivation, then your deeds will be good and fruitful, bringing glory to God. If love for Christ is your root system, this is a review from Tuesday, your motivation, then your deeds will be good and fruitful, bringing glory to God, 2 Corinthians 5.14. So shall we become religious then? Supposing that we force deeds in keeping with righteousness? In other words, if, if Jesus is saying, keep my commands, so then we keep the commands in a religious sense, shall we do that thing? Well, that's a dangerous proposition because it bypasses the critical component, namely motivation and heart. Here's the better approach as it came out on Tuesday up here on the board. I'm going relatively quickly because these are points of review. Here's the better approach. Dealing with disappointment. If you find that your deeds are inadequate or inappropriate, God wants you to examine your heart and to turn to Him and His Word for help with fixing it. Don't become religious. Don't force deeds. That's a waste of your time. So if you find that your deeds in your self-examination, something we should be doing daily, if we find that our deeds are inadequate or inappropriate, God wants us to examine our hearts. But not turn to our flesh for the solution. Turn to Him for the solution, because it's His power that we're able to do anything good. And we might cry out, as it says up there on the board, for example, increase my faith, Lord. That's what the disciples cried out. Mark 9.24, Luke 17.5. At the close of Tuesday's lesson, the Spirit decided to pad our message with a lot of Scripture. So let's review that now. Go to John 14.21. John 14.21. He padded our lesson with a lot of Scripture. I just want to review it with you now. I'm going to add a couple little things here and there. <coughs> Wonderful lesson on Tuesday. John 14.21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Okay. Any questions? He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? And the story goes on from there. Jesus said unequivocally that evidence of faith and love are in play always. 
evidence. We shouldn't be afraid of that thing. It's very, I don't, I don't want to use the word natural because I don't want you to get confused with natural mindedness, but it's very natural in God's realm that there's evidence. As I've taught many, many times, love can't help but express itself. Faith always has works, so says James. So Jesus said unequivocally that evidence of faith and love are in play always, that the one who loves him does indeed keep his commandments. And you know what? He really didn't leave any room for debate. He really didn't leave any room for debate. Again, look at verse 21. He says plainly, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. That keep is from tereo, up here on the board in the original language, tereo, to keep, guard, observe, watch over. That's from Strong's. Is in the present tense active voice, which means that it is something a person does habitually. He who has my commandments and keeps them habitually is the one who loves me. Doesn't mean you're not going to fail. It just means habitually you keep them. We're going to talk a little bit more about lifestyle this evening. But that is very plainly stated doctrine, if you would. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. So there's a definite connection between obedience and true love for the Lord. Again, the original Greek really does remove any debate about evidence being tied to faith and even love. Paul wrote about this years later, as we saw on Tuesday. Go to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1. So obviously, Paul, being a star pupil, had a lot of things to say, consistent with the Lord's thoughts on this topic as well. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1. <clears throat> Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, as to how you ought to walk and please God. You see, walking and pleasing God. In other words, activity, doing, deeds, all the same thing that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it. Remember, he said, you're already doing this. He's encouraging this group. Keep on doing it, in other words. Keep on having these good deeds. 
and keep on loving the way you've loved. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. In other words, don't just sit on your laurels or rest on your laurels. Keep it up. This is what encouragement looks like. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly. You see, the end result is a deed so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. So once again, Paul certainly was never one to shy away from speaking directly to evidence of faith and love. I mean, this has been an issue coming from this pulpit for years now. Evidence. People don't like it. Contemporary Christianity, contemporary Christians really uh, don't like it because it calls people to the table. But the simple fact is that the Bible is wrought with it. Evidence of faith and love. It's part of our walk. And you know who else wasn't afraid of this, these kinds of conversations? John. You could argue that John was even more stout than Paul. Go to 1 John 2.4. 1 John 2.4, the Apostle John. And it's interesting because he's also, you know, for obvious reasons, dubbed the Apostle of Love. But yet he was so stark when it came to these kinds of things. 1 John 2.4, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. That's describing an unbeliever even. The person who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. In verse 5, we're talking about a believer here. Whoever keeps his word, teleo, in the Greek, I'll give you it in a moment. Whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected perfected or matured, as we know, up here on the board, Strong's as a course, has been perfected as a course, a race, or the like, I complete or finish, B, as of time or prediction, I accomplish, and C, I make perfect, passive, I am perfected. Teleo in the Greek, has been perfected. The interesting thing about verse 5 is as uh, McDonald, I'm going to borrow from uh, McDonald on this, he describes it well up here in the board on verse 5 of 1 John 2. The, quote, love of God does not refer to our love for God, but rather to his love for us. The thought is that God's love toward us has been brought to its goal when we keep his word. Remember God's desire, all to be saved and come to the knowledge of him. So again, the thought is that God's love toward us has been brought to its goal when we keep His Word. Of course that's what God wants. Of course when we keep His Word, we produce good fruit and all glory and honor goes to Him. That's the pipeline, if you would. That's what He wants out of His children, out of His creatures, to have glory brought to Him. It accomplishes its aim and reaches its end in producing obedience to Him. Now, to be fair to ourselves, we must also remember 
that the Bible also teaches that sanctification takes time. Sanctification takes time. So we have to be fair to ourselves. Therefore, to our series title, Undistracted Devotion to the Lord, this too takes time. I don't know if, about you, but there's many days where I step outside and just walk and be with the Lord, and I'm upset that I'm distracted. It's upsetting to me that I'm ever distracted from Him, that my devotion ever strays in any way, in any part of my life. And then I remember it takes time because I'm not there yet. In other words, while the direction has been set in our new creature at salvation, I know where I want to go. Sound like Paul in Romans 7 now. I know where I want to go. I just don't always go there. I, I, my, my direction is set, but I stumble. Some days it's my first step out of bed, figuratively speaking. I stumble. My first step is a stumble. <laughs> but I get up and I resume the course. I know where I want to go. Something distracts me. I go this way a little bit. My devotion wanes. I, you know, I go back. I'm distracted. I end up over here. So while the direction has been set in our new creature at salvation, the perfection part remains outstanding. None of us are perfect. Um, so perfection is sort of the end goal. Conclusion? Again, none of us are perfect. Our faith isn't. Our love isn't. And our deeds aren't. And that's okay. This is why it is so very important during these messages to stay tuned to our baseline theology regarding sanctification up here on the board. God sanctifies our hearts. Fruit is the evidence of His love abiding in us. Increasing evidence means increased sanctification. For example, we keep His Word more and more. That's the whole idea behind sanctification. Five years ago, we kept His Word this much. Today, we keep it this much. Tomorrow, we keep it this much, etc., etc. And we know that's going to happen if we're saved because of Philippians 1.6. We know that what He's promised, He will complete in us. What he started in us, he will complete, and God never fails. Sort of despite us. But that's what sanctification looks like. Fruit is the evidence of his love abiding in us. Increasing evidence means increased sanctification. In all fairness to the Bible, we ought never be discouraged by the truth. For truth is meant to set us free. Just another thought on sanctification proper up here on the board if truth ever puts us back into bondage, it's not truth's fault, it's our own. Truth sets us free by God's design. Again, if truth ever puts us back into bondage, it's not truth's fault, it's our own. You know, for example, you hear the truth, you hear a commandment, you're convicted, you say, okay, I'm going to become religious. You just put yourself back into bondage. Nothing wrong with the command. Nothing wrong with understanding that God's desire is that you live in that command. 
But since you're not, you become religious, you force it, now you're in bondage again. That's not sanctification. That's you perverting sanctification. That's you trying your own hand at sanctification. We all do it, and we have to catch ourselves. Um, again, if the truth ever puts us back into bondage, in other words, if you hear a convicting message, like say this last week's, and you feel like you're in greater bondage and not free, you have to step back and say, what is actually going on? What is my flesh doing to me? It's one thing to be convicted and feel the pressure of truth. That's not what I'm talking about. And be humbled by it. Be pressed down into humility. Nothing wrong with that. I'm talking about trying to make up your own solutions and ending up in bondage again. So if the truth ever puts us back in a bond, it's not truth's fault. It's our own. Truth sets us free by God's design. Let's read a couple of more passages. Go to 1 John 3, 21. 1 John 3, verse 21. First John 3:21 Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments. Remember that harkens back to the cause effect notion that has been coming from the pulpit this last week uh, that blessings are the result of something cause causing it if you would, and that would be obedience to cut to chase. Whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. That sort of um, puts prayer in its proper place. I mean, this verse could be completely perverted. Whatever we ask of Him, we receive. I want a million bucks. Where is it? Where's the evidence of God's love? If God loved me, give me a million bucks. Yeah, that's not in accordance with His will. So whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. The reason I don't have a million bucks, He might say, I'm not giving you a million bucks. First of all, it's not in my plan for you. i got other plans for you. Second of all, maybe, I don't know, maybe I'd implode. I don't think I would personally. I'm just saying, God. I don't think I would personally, but, I mean, I'm willing to test the theory. You know what I'm saying? He, first of all, he's, you know. But second of all, for a lot of people, I think it would be a capacity issue. He's going to say, no, you, you, know, you don't have the capacity for that thing. You're not going to do anything pleasing to me. That's just going to corrupt you because you can't handle the temptation of having that much uh, dough. So there's a cause effect here. Again, this hell, I love verse 22 because it puts prayer. It puts our prayer life in perspective. Whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He commanded us. The, the one who keeps His commandments abides in Him, and He in Him. We know by this that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. One last passage, go to 1 John 5, verse 1. 1 John 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. I'm going quickly because these are all review from Tuesday. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God 
and observe his commandments. Hmm. For this is the love of God. You ready? This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Verse 3 is a big statement, you see. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. So our perspective, a mature perspective on God's commandments um, is like this. This is the love of God, that we keep them. A mature perspective is that you want to keep them, that you love to keep them. I was just reading, because uh, Jeremy brought it up the other day, how much he enjoyed the book, uh, Covert Arrogance. I was just reading about the fact that uh, a humble person actually wants to be judged by God. And I thought about David. He said, I'd rather be judged by you any day than man, because man is partial. You're impartial. At least I know I'm going to get a fair shake. A humble person wants to be judged by God. You know why? Because God is perfect in his justice. Which means, as I taught on Sunday, that the sword cuts both ways. If you're righteous, you get blessed. If you're unrighteous, you get cursed. But at least you know where you stand with God. And that's why his commandments are not burdensome to one who is righteous, to one who's loving. For this is the love of, the, of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Now, we just got to change gears a little bit. Here's where we changed gears and became really practical on Sunday. And then it carried into Tuesday, of course. We've already established in our studies that there's a cause-effect relationship between obedience and blessings. It's amazing that people demand all the blessings from God but fail to obey and the Bible clears that up very quickly and very tidily. If you don't obey, you don't get the blessings. So we've already established that in our studies, the cause-effect relationship between obedience and blessings. Jesus plainly stated that if we keep his commandments, we will abide in his love. I mean, what greater blessing is there than that? None. None. And he said that plainly. That if we keep His commandments, we will abide in His love. Some of us play games um, with commandments, with the idea of commandments. We play games. We pick and choose ones that sort of complement our own fleshly end goals. Oh, they're there, all right. But we're lopsided. So we play games by hyper-focusing on certain commandments like, you know, confessing our sins. I mean, by now, we should all be confessing our sins. That just means to agree with God that it's a sin. Or seeking forgiveness. I mean, that's something we should be doing, obviously, habitually. Um, or a host of other commands that deal with the, let's call it the recovery process. In other words, we sometimes play games and say, I'm going to become a master at recovery. That's cool. I mean, it's great. If you're able to recover and move on and not be dealing with guilt and condemnation, dragging that around for the rest of your life, great. What a blessing. But some of us play games, and that's where we, we stop it there. Because to preempt the need for a recovery, 
would mean we'd have to delve into our lifestyles, the things that get us into sin in the first place that require the recovery. So some of us, you know, say, but I do follow God's commands. I do love God's commands. Yeah, because who doesn't love to recover? Who doesn't love God's mercy, God's grace? I do. Love it. But there's more to this life than just recovery. And there's more to his commands than just the ones that help us recover, like confess your sins, etc. Self-examination, whatever. Um, there's more to it, but we play games. Because we really, if you think about it, we don't want to give up the root cause. So in other words, we make the error of focusing on post-sinning commands only. Some of us. I think the more mature you get, the more you realize uh, it's time to move on up the food, up, upstream. <laughs> Let's say we start avoiding some of the sinning in the first place. And that's what the Spirit's been bringing out. It's great that you have all these other commands down pat that you know how to recover. But how about we avoid sinning in the first place? Well, that's going to require a different kind of examination. Not just identifying sin itself, but what is producing this sin? What kind of evil do we have in our life? Where it's producing temptation, and then temptation gives birth to, to lust and then therefore sin. That type of thing. So we may make the error of focusing on post-sinning. What the spirits re redirected our attention to is simple up here on the board. And this is maybe the pivotal point this evening. Um, it certainly came out uh, heavy-handed on Sunday. Premeditation. This is the root sustenance of an evil lifestyle. Such a lifestyle would immediately halt if we quit planning and feeding it. If we know this and refuse to adjust, that in of itself is willful sinning. That's what the Spirit has told us. James 4.17, the one who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, it's a sin. So let me say that again. Premeditation. This is the root sustenance of an evil lifestyle. Such a lifestyle would immediately halt if we quit planning and feeding it. If we quit premeditating the thing, it's like a little, you know, there's, it's like, you know, you're in a, uh, a locomotive and it's got all this momentum and that momentum is called your life and you keep throwing coal in the burner. Right? As long as you keep feeding that engine, you're going to go. You keep putting whatever you want to call it. Maybe, you, maybe you're crazy and you've got a nuclear-powered train and you're doing like 700 miles an hour. Maybe that's your... Stop putting plutonium or whatever it is they put in those things. All right? Whatever it is, stop feeding that engine. Don't just say, I know how to recover. I know how to recover. I'm a master at recovery. Why are you having to recover? And why so often? And is there something that could be done? Is there, are there a set of, another set of or category of commands in the Bible that would help you so you wouldn't have to recover so often. There's an old saying among pilots. Uh, I'm going to butcher it because I haven't flown in a long time. 
it's use your um, use your good judgment on the ground so you don't have to use your superior ability in the air. Do you understand? Use your good judgment on the ground so you don't have to use your superior ability or judgment in the air. For example, if a guy's is just like um, what they would call VFR rated, visual flight rules, not IFR, instrument rated. Instrument rated means you can fly through clouds and you just go by your instruments. You don't even have to see outside. But if a VFR guy goes up in a storm, you're going to have a big problem. You're going to get in the mix, in the soup, as they say. He's going to have a really big problem. That's what happened to JFK Jr. And that's why he's dead. Him and his fiance. I mean, that was years ago, but that's the one that always comes to mind. So I'm going to tell you a little parable that I made up, and I apologize ahead of time for, you know, the imperfections in it. But hopefully this drives the point home. A machine operator goes into his boss's office for his annual performance review. His boss sits him down and says, so tell me why you believe you deserve a raise this year. So the man says, well, I was able to fix machine number four a total of 100 times this year, which is a record. The boss responds, well, I'm just curious, how many man hours it took to fix the machine each time on average? The man says, well, I'm really fast, you see. So while it may have taken others eight hours, I was able to fix it in four. So the boss says, if my math is correct, that means that about 400 hours, about 10 weeks total, was spent fixing machine number four last year. And before the man could respond, the boss adds, have you ever thought about why machine number four keeps breaking? The man says, no, I only focused my attention on getting better at fixing it when it broke. In fact, I have it down to a science at this point, and I was going to propose that I lead a training course. The boss responds, well, the truth is that machine number four should have been taken out of service years ago. That's why we purchased machine number five, the one that you've refused to use because you didn't like the operator interface, said it was too computerized. And as a result, our productivity has suffered, not to mention that one of my highest paid machine operators spent 10 whole weeks worth of man hours on something unnecessary. So the man goes into defensive mode saying, but isn't it a good thing that I'm able to fix machine number four so quickly? And the boss says, technically it's a very good thing. But you're failing to see the big picture here. That is, that there are much better, more fruitful options available that we need to exercise. The man just sort of goes numb. So the boss continues, for example, if machine number five is significantly more reliable, 
and even churns out more product than number four, why would we ever stick with the old machine? The cold hard fact is that your unwillingness to expand your viewpoint beyond the historical way of doing things has cost our company thousands of dollars over the past couple of years. It was at this point that the machine operator understood what his boss was telling him. Well, first, he wasn't going to get a raise. <laughs> In fact, at this juncture, he was hoping to keep his job. But to his credit, in humility, he stepped back and thought about what his boss was telling him. And when he did, he quickly realized that due to his being, you know, set in his ways and his unwillingness to seek improvement, he had essentially thwarted the best plan for manufacturing that his company had. In other words... This man had adopted a work routine, a.k.a. lifestyle, that inhibited his own promotion, a.k.a. sanctification. This is analogous to what we do when we refuse to step back and see the big picture in our own lives. That's what I was just describing five minutes ago. Oh, you might be a master at fixing and restoring problems, but are you missing the big picture? So this is analogous to what we do when we refuse to step back and see the big picture in our own lives. In case you missed it, the manufacturing line represents our lifestyle, the man our volition, and the boss, God. We all have to step back and consider what the Spirit's been laying out before us. And like the machine operator in the parable, we must, in humility, accept our boss's message. Is it wrong, to be fair? Is it wrong that we are really good at following certain commands that help us fix and or recover from our failures? Not at all. It's great. However, it is most definitely wrong if we continue to function in an old way when we know there's a better way. And that's why we learn. That's why we study the Bible. It's so that we find a better way, that God teaches us a better way. That's part of sanctification. You didn't know yesterday what you know today. And you might say, but I've read the whole Bible three times. That doesn't mean anything. That just means you can read. That doesn't mean anything. I can read, I can open up a scripture right now, New Testament, read it and go, I never saw that before. And I've read it a hundred times. Why? Because I'm in a different place now than I was yesterday or five years ago or ten years ago. We don't just sit still in this life. So it is definitely wrong if we continue to function in an old way when we know there's a better way. The net-net is, is as we were taught on Sunday and Tuesday up here on the board. Again, this echoes of that, I call it the whopper. <laughs> a lifestyle may not be sinful by itself. However, if you are weak in a certain area and you architect a lifestyle 
that consistently places you in the crosshairs of temptation and failure then, then you are sinning. Again, it's great that you're able to recover and you understand the commandments that deal with recovery. Awesome. But step back. Why are you having to recover the way you're recovering? Why are you still working on machine number four? Why are you so set in your ways? That's what the Spirit's saying. You might say, but my lifestyle's good. I mean, there's nothing wrong with my lifestyle. My lifestyle produces product. My lifestyle... And my neighbor has the same lifestyle, and he's not sinning, as far as I know. Well, that's another mistake altogether. You can't look at your neighbor. You can't even look at your spouse. It's really you. So a lifestyle may not be sinful by itself. However, if you are weak in a certain area and you architect a lifestyle that consistently places you in the crosshairs of temptation and therefore failure, then you are sinning up here on the board. And the sad part about is this up here on the board, that the truth is that we lose blessings when we choose to focus our attention and often our affections on someone or something other than our first love, Jesus Christ. Why is it that you keep sinning? Why is it that this lifestyle is conducive to all the wrong things or many wrong things? Well, chances are you lost your first love. Chances are Jesus Christ doesn't want you in that position. He wants you to think about why you're in the position in the first place. It's great that you're able to recover, but he's got a whole host of commands. Like, obey. <laughs> Seek my counsel. Read my word. All that kind of stuff is what we would call pre-counsel. So you don't have to. It's like the, the aeronautical analogy, right? Do your homework on the ground so you don't crash and burn every time when you go up for a flight, when you take flight in the morning. That's all he's saying. Like the machine operator in the parable who didn't receive his promotion, the longer we remain stuck in our old ways and refuse to heed the Spirit's counsel, by addressing the lifestyle issues in our lives, the longer our sanctification takes. The longer our sanctification takes. Why? Because we're stuck. We don't get the promotion, we don't get the blessings, because we're stuck. Wouldn't it, all right, just, let's, all right, so let me just throw it out there. Wouldn't it be a blessing if you sin less? <laughs> How's that work? Don't put yourself in that position. Duh. Right? I mean, what are we doing? It's not rocket science. But we don't often do that. So this is nothing more than cause effect played over again up here on the board conditional blessings, the fact that the Bible never skirts the issue of cause-effect when it comes to conditional blessings is something we must take the time to understand wholly. 
The fact that the Bible never skirts the issue of cause-effect when it comes to conditional blessings is something we must take the time to understand wholly. If you're willfully sinning by architecting a lifestyle that produces subsequent sinning, what do you think about the blessings? Sayonara. The Bible warns us. It's not like it doesn't warn us. It's not like Jesus Christ himself didn't warn us. That's the whole point. Furthermore, there are things tied to these blessings, right? The things we're all after. I mean, raise your hand if you don't want to have joy in your life. Who doesn't want to have love? Happiness? How about peace? You know what? Our joy is conditional. If you're a train wreck, if every time you take a flight you crash and burn, chances are you're not going to be the happiest person. It hurts. It hurts. And God says it's going to hurt. And he uses that suffering to prove it to you. This is what it feels like to be disjoint from me. I told you it was going to happen. I told you if you stick your finger in a light socket, you're going to get shot. <laughs> I told you it was going to happen. It happens every time. I'm God. I created the, the physics behind it, even. Our joy is conditional. Whether we like to think on those terms or not is not the issue. That's what the Bible teaches us. So that's what I'm teaching. Joy in time for a believer is conditioned upon obedience. You say, well, how do I get joy? Obey. Obey. It's not much different than when you were a kid and you didn't obey your parents. Kind of not a whole lot of joy when you're either getting spanked or grounded or whatever happened, whatever the repercussions are, assuming you had good parents that were willing to discipline you. Not the most joyful times. But when you obeyed and there was peace in the house, it was awesome. It was great. Go figure. John 15, 7, 11, 16, 24. I'll give you 16, 24 up here on the board. John 16, 24. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Asking you will receive, so that, cause, effect, and view, your joy may be made full. But remember the premise that we saw earlier. The premise was you keep, you're in keeping with his commandments. God's not about to answer effectively. He might just to prove it something to you, but you know what I'm saying. He's not going to answer a prayer if it's disjoint from him, if he can't make good with it somehow. So remember that. Asking you will receive so that, cause and effect and view, your joy may be made full. I suppose what the Spirit's laying on the line here is that we cannot ask and expect to receive if we are willingly disjoint from God's will. We cannot ask and expect to receive if we are willingly disjoint from Him. We cannot, for example, play the silly games we play when it comes to convicting messages like this one. Trust me, I know this one's convicting. I look around, where the heck is everybody? That always... As a shepherd, that always is a proof point for me, believe it or not. When the left, 
when the lessons get really tough and convicting, it's like a pimple. You know, all the pus just squeezes out. I hate to be gross, but it's Thursday. It's not Sunday, so whatever. Right? Uh, people are like, did you just call me pus? They're online right now. I couldn't make it. You call me pus, pasta. What's up? If that's you, don't worry about it. I'm talking to people who won't listen to this lesson. Do you know what I'm saying? Because the series is tough. It's challenging our lifestyles. And we don't like that. Our flesh is squirming. I know they're tough. So we can't play these games when it comes to convicting messages like this one. And just for the record, being the vessel by which this curriculum flows through, I can say with 100% confidence that anyone who's actually listened to these messages by now must be convicted. Must be convicted. Unless they really haven't listened. I mean, I'm talking about people who actually have listened. If you've listened to this series, there's only 12 parts so far, right? On part 12. If you've listened to this series, you have to be convicted. Everyone here is convicted somehow because no one here has a perfect lifestyle. Hate to break, burst your bubble. Nobody does. And that's the whole point. That's why we're here. We're learning. Just to drive this point home up here on the board, lifestyle versus sin, this is for clarity's sake. So people, you know, because you know how people are, right? People lawyer up. That's what they do. You know, the, the flesh starts to squirm, and then they start lawyering up. They might, if they're really, you know, slick, maybe even well-versed in the Bible, they'll, take, they'll do what Satan did and take things out of context. Says right here, I can do this. Says right here, I can do that. Yeah, well, I think you're missing the context. I think you might be like machine operator number four. Too many people try to justify their ungodly lifestyles by focusing on a benign lifestyle instead of the consistent sin it produces. If you choose to live an evil lifestyle, it is your choice that stands out as the sin, not necessarily the lifestyle, for it may be fine for someone else. That's what the Spirit's been saying. It's no longer just enough to say, I sinned. God, this Holy Spirit, is saying to all of us right now, I, I want you to ask yourself, why? Do we see a pattern here? <laughs> I think I see a pattern here. Why do you keep sinning in the same way? Why does this thing keep happening? And when you realize that that's what's happening... Now you're held accountable. And if you know the right thing to do, which is stop it, and you don't do it, now that becomes an indictment. That becomes a sin in your life. And you may say, oh man, this is, you know, I just can't catch a break. This is a good thing. When you realize there's sin in your life, something that causes, is the root cause for spiritual death. Even the vestiges of sin are what bring us down, right? When you realize that something heinous is in your life, something that is by design uh, ushers in spiritual death, don't you, want, don't you want to know about it? Don't you want to get that out of your system? 
Don't you want joy and peace and happiness all in love? Don't you want to be 100%? You're not going to get there, but you know what I'm saying. Is, don't you want that to be your target, your end goal? I do. So if there's sin in my life, I want to know about it. I don't want to be a little, you know, adolescent punk. Stop telling me about my sin. I'm happy the way I am. You're really not. That's a lie you tell yourself so you can keep on sinning, so you can keep living this lifestyle that you've architected for yourself. I think I'm going to end there. Again, food for thought. We've got a weekend ahead of us before Sunday. I've got about four pages of notes. That's cool. I'll pick it up on Sunday. Too many people try to justify their ungodly lifestyles by focusing on a benign lifestyle instead of the consistent sin it produces. It's just a call to the carpet. That's all this is. And you should be very grateful. And you should be very grateful that you have, and I'm not saying this about me because I've been put here by God, you should be very grateful that you have a pastor uh, and a teacher as well that stand behind this pulpit and give you the truth on the topic. Right? I mean, you should be very grateful that that's what you have here. It's, it's not as common as it should be, sadly. And I'm not throwing stones at other churches or anything, but it's not as common as it should be. And it's, it makes me very sad. Nonetheless, if you choose to live an evil lifestyle, it is your choice. I'm not judging you. I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to teach the truth. But it is your choice that stands out as the sin, not necessarily the lifestyle. Amen? Uh, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful privilege to study your word. We're so very grateful and thankful for all that you do for us. It's incredible, Father, your faithfulness. We're so faithless sometimes, and you're so faithful. Father, thank you for your patience, your mercy, your love. And thank you for the ability to share such things with a world that is just decaying. A world that seems to be accelerating away from a love that could set them free. Father, we just ask for your blessings on this evening's message and we ask for your blessings as we take it out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.